Hey everyone, it's Keith. So perhaps it depends on your political persuasions, but statistics do show that there has been a spike in crime across the U.S. and the world since the summer of 2020, the COVID era, most now defined by the summer of George Floyd and the global protests in response to his unjust death specifically targeted at police brutality, but more broadly targeted at Western civilization in general, white people, the patriarchy. And it led to such sloganeering as defund the police, abolish the police, which then did lead to a reaction from policing in many major cities like New York, LA, Seattle, in which police stepped down, mayors responded to what they assumed was the major belief at the time that policing was somehow bad. And uh, crime responded accordingly. It's deeper than that, of course, and many cities have since corrected. You know, people within high crime neighborhoods actually do want to feel protected and policed. It's a myth that policing is disfavored by black communities, for instance. And yet many well-educated, well-meaning leftists and progressives still somehow think that the police are nothing but an antiquated remnant of herding up slaves for the aristocratic slave owners. This is an extremely unfair <laughs> analysis and extremely stupid. Where does it come from? It comes from woke ideology. This is a term that's obviously bandied about a ton, often with little understanding. Leftists I speak to often deny its existence, or if it does exist, what's the problem? And people on the right seem to think it's like the devil incarnate and must be stopped by any means necessary. Of course, there's nuance. Let me try and define it before launching in today's episode. Woke ideology is essentially a rebranding of outdated Marxist ideology, which divides the world essentially into haves and have-nots, the privileged and the victims, and that priv the privileged must have inherently stolen their privilege from victims. Marx had a very <laughs> rudimentary understanding of capitalism, which has certainly evolved since then. And no doubt, Marx, as a major critic, helped capitalism evolve since its days of like mercantilism, for instance. Wealth is created not from the backs of others, but through sophisticated systems of trade and economy. It's not merely the exploitation of labor. Labor certainly is exploited. There certainly are victims. And I have no shame in saying that I was once a Marxist as a teenager and in my 20s. There's something there for sure. But to take this idea that all privileged people are basically evil because there are victims and underprivileged people is facile and wrong. And yet, woke ideology takes that basic premise and applies it to literally everything 
and every one, wherever a bisection can be made. Men versus women, white versus black, as if there are only two races, able-bodied versus disabled, and on and on. Trans people are thereby victims and need special rights to overcorrect. Authoritarianism is often coupled with Marxism because in order to create outcomes in society, you need immense pressure and social engineering that won't happen naturally. And people sympathetic with woke ideology will say as much that we need an overcorrection to to deal with the injustices of history and that women or minorities or whomever can't do it on their own but need the weight of an entire system and civilization behind them in order to get up to where they belong. I think this is wrong as a classical liberal. I think if you provide equality of opportunity, it will happen in time. If you remove all barriers, if you create an equal playing field and equal process and due process, that we will get to this utopia we strive toward and that the liberal project has done more in this regard than any sort of system ever. And we fiddle with it at our own peril. We are messing with a system that works and replacing it with these ad hoc supposed systems toward justice that are backfiring every which way. I see this in every headline in which identity politics are a factor, as if everything boils down to these niche bespoke identities that we create for ourselves and that how the system just tramples over us as if inherently evil toward these unique individuals. Systems are unfair, to be sure. I will rally against the unfairness of life as much as anybody, but to blame patriarchy and white civilization for every time a black person suffers is just wrong. And it was wrong with George Floyd. It was wrong with Trayvon Martin or Rodney King. And that's not to have no sympathy for these cases. Certainly, police brutality is a huge problem that needs to be addressed. Um, and anytime somebody is put into a dangerous chokehold or shot needlessly or multiple times, this needs to be studied. But to go into such things as, you know, subconscious bias or white supremacy or racial profiling and the like is just very misguided and takes our society down a divisive, dangerous rabbit hole. I think most classic liberals and leftists pre-Obama would say that the best way to do that is to remove institutional barriers, to provide access and opportunities to everyone, regardless of whatever political identity, or rather, not even political, just identity, politicized identity, perhaps we can say, to offer support for everybody and so that your skin color or your orientation or your gender or what have you is irrelevant in civil society. I think that's a great thing to believe, and I still believe. So 
of course, I thought that the entire scene of 2020 and the reaction to George Floyd's death was massively outsized, but it did offer an opportunity to deal with something that I certainly agree with as a problem, which is police brutality. And it was a good chance for some real reform to prevent certain tragedies from happening like this. And it certainly was a tragedy that somebody might die simply for being arrested for some silly thing, or even to die for some serious thing. I mean, I don't support people dying, but I do not care as much as supposed woke activists care. I think that their point is that care and you know, preventing harm is the only moral value worth striving for, that it's the only thing that matters. And if you don't care about the death of some unfortunate person, then you are a monster. You are a heathen or a bigot or subhuman in some way, and then you can be demonized. The care disappears at that point because you have defined yourself as somebody that is outside of that, you know, belief system, which I find ironic because, you know, if, if anyone has studied moral philosophy, there are five or six axes of moral foundations, and care is just one of them. You know, uh, in-grouping is actually another example of a moral foundation that conservatives have. Uh, it's a sort of deference to authority, a sort of deference to hierarchy and tradition. And as much as liberals today, progressives, regressives really, claim to not care about that, they care about it very much because it's very team-based. It's very our side versus your side. It's very you're with us or against us, which I find very unhelpful as a classic liberal who doesn't value that as much. Same with sanctity, you know, um, this idea of um, cleanliness and, you know, keeping your body in good shape, keeping your social body politic in good shape. This is also a traditional conservative value. You know, if you look at chastity and abstinence and border control, these are all re like Republican values of people that are more afraid of something that can toxify or poison them, something that can, you know, dilute the, the dilute society in some negative way. This is a conservative principle, and yet liberals have taken it on, especially with like GMOs and health food, but also with uh, this kind of, you know, definitely with COVID as well, but also with um, this sense of like disgust at the other. And if you don't believe what we believe, then you are the other, and that is disgusting. And then your, you know, your social etiquette can go out the window because you've found somebody that doesn't agree with you and therefore you can other them. You know, this is like a very, <laughs> it's very classic in terms of studying governments like, you know, the Nazis or any authoritarian regime that others and then is able to, you know, c commit genocide essentially. It's very ironic to me that leftists show a lot of that behavior. So... <sighs> That's a lot of backstory here. Um, let's finally get into the topic at hand. The case I want to be discussing today is that of Jordan Neely, a 30-year-old New Yorker who died on the 1st of May of 2023. Jordan Neely has a history of mental erratic behavior 
and a criminal record of something like 40 arrests, I think, in his life, including punching women in the face in public, etc. He was supposedly acting very hostile and unpredictable on the day of his death. There's no video footage that I'm aware of of the events leading up to his death, which was a strangling by a fellow passenger, a 24-year-old, and ex-Marine who subdued Neely. I, for one, can imagine the scene of a quite scary and hostile environment. I've seen a lot of video footage of such things where you have to ask yourself, why doesn't somebody do something about this? And in this case, somebody did, and it resulted in a killing. And this is a flashpoint now for mental health issues, for race relations as usual, but also for cities and policing and bureaucracy and political viewpoints and such. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. I'm going to play a clip by Mayor Eric Adams. Eric Adams is a black man who I supported in what year did he run? Um, was it last year, 2022, maybe? He's uh, he's not favored by a lot of leftists and progressives because he ran on a sort of law and order platform in response to what was actually the silent majority opinion of the time and still is, frankly, that our cities are a mess, that we don't feel safe in them, that there's too much violence, that we actually do need the police. That is the majority opinion, despite what activists proclaim. And he won on that basis. And I find it quite convenient that he's also black, because why would you not? I mean, I definitely have that sort of trust in a black man speaking of crime uh, over a white man because of those optics, you know, unfortunately. It's kind of like, you know, I voted for Obama and I intended to vote for Hillary. You know, overseas it was hard and I assumed she would win without my vote in New York. But, you know, I definitely wasn't voting for Hillary because she was a woman. I definitely wasn't voting for Obama because he was black. But they are cool, you know, like it's like a nice, you know, icing on the cake, as it were, to, to tick those boxes and to like say, oh, yeah, that's some uh, that's a point of pride. You know, someone that was considered a minority in the past has, you know, broken through that glass ceiling of sorts. But I don't think it's a reason to vote for somebody. What I find interesting is how liberals actively fight against certain minorities um, you know, that there's this big rush right now to cancel and deplatform and unseat the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who is black and who is quite conservative. But, you know, I'm no fan of Clarence Thomas, but I do respect some of his beliefs. He has a sort of moral compass on how he imagines or envisions a future for an, uh, you know, an America in which black people can thrive and succeed. He certainly has done that himself, and I think it's valid that there are conservative black people and that they have different views on race relations in the USA. And yet, so-called progressive activists want to unseat him and, you know, character assassinate him. And this is a black man. So I just find that somewhat ironic that all of this is in the name, supposedly, of racial justice. And yet 
in certain cases, any excuse can be made to ignore that, you know, to advocate for women. But then as soon as the woman is of a wrong, of a different opinion, like Sarah Palin or something, or, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, then all of a sudden the fact that she's a woman is irrelevant and they can be dismissed because of their beliefs, which I just find that to be a funny inconsistency. It's like, fair enough that somebody should be judged on their beliefs or their statements or their character and not these other identity politics. And yet, you know, I'm, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm not the one saying like, let's vote this kind of person in, let's support this person, let's prosecute them just because of this or that. I just find it funny that people say that stuff. And then as soon as it happens, then it's clearly coming down to more, to more than that. I don't know what's, what that's all about. I don't know what that's all about. Okay. So enough dilly dallying. Let me play you this clip in which Mayor Adams racializes this story. My fellow New Yorkers, this has been a week of strong emotions in our city. One of our own is dead. A black man, black like me. A man named Jordan, the name I gave my son. A New Yorker who struggled with tragedy, trauma, and mental illness. A man whose last words were a cry for help. A man named Jordan Neely. Right. So Mayor Adams goes on to describe the life of Jordan Neely. He talks about the family and how they're suffering. There's a lot of like emphasis on the victim. And that's a trend socially with news and, I don't know, our mental focus. You know, when there's like a mass shooting, it's like, let's discover the 13 dead victims of this terrible tragedy. It's like, who the hell cares about 13 random people that were in the wrong place at the wrong time? I want to know why somebody did that. I don't care about victims. You know, I... I <laughs> In that sense, you know, like innocent bystanders who died, like that's super sad. You know, it's a personal tragedy for people related to that. But it's like, that is not what's interesting in the world. What's interesting is that people are unhinged and kill other people, you know, like there's this whole like dangerous phenomenon of a copycat syndrome or like if you highlight the, if you give the attention to the killer, then that might provoke more killings because other people want that spotlight well that's interesting you know if like people are killing one another just for the spotlight like that's something to study but to just be a victim like that's nothing that's i don't know why i would suddenly care about somebody just because they died you know unless it was you dear listener who was telling me a story that was more personal and relatable but in general, like, I don't understand that kind of phenomenon in the news. And I definitely don't understand this sort of, like, lionization of victims, you know, in this case, Jordan Ailey, certainly with George Floyd, you know, like some of the subreddits I was following really poked fun at this by calling him like Saint Floyd and talking about what a miracle worker he was and how people were in love with him. It's like, this is a criminal. This was a criminal on fentanyl you know, who had a huge rap sheet and none of that mattered anymore because he was just a victim, a victim of race. And I find that just really, really stupid and really like, 
I don't know. Like, it's like, and when I get into these discussions with people who want to make that point, it's like just this moral grandstanding of like, oh, I care about racial injustice. You don't? It's like, well, yeah, sure. I care about injustice, period. If it's race-based, that's a problem for sure. I care about injustice, but I do not care about just, you know, this sort of virtue signaling like, oh, did you notice this person was black and the perpetrator was white? Therefore, we have to pay attention to it. It's like, no, that's not the basis for this. And a couple more comments about this speech. You know, I'll give Adam's credit. Like, this is probably written by a younger speechwriter who wanted to play this angle and knew it would get the attention of a lot of liberal media consumers and whatnot. And it's hard for me to even say how much he, like, genuinely means all this. He's presenting this, by the way, like, in a very formal button-down in front of flags kind of press conference, which is like a weird look to me. It's overly formalized and stuffy. I think of Eric Adams in more of that like Zelensky style, you know, of just wearing something more casual, certainly not a tie. And I respect that more in terms of leadership on the ground, dealing with real issues, you know, like don't put up this pomp and circumstance, you know, but it's like, regal it's presidential frankly and it reminded me of actually barack obama's speech on trayvon martin back in the day and i want to play that clip now you know uh, when uh, trayvon martin was first shot uh, i said that this could have been my son Uh, another way of saying that is uh, trayvon martin could have been me uh, 35 years ago And when you think about why, in the African-American community at least, um, there's a lot of pain around what happened here. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that um, the African-American community is looking at this issue through uh, a set of experiences and a a history that, uh, that doesn't go away. All right, so I'm a fan of Barack Obama still to this day. I I think he's the coolest president ever, and I respect him a lot on so many levels. Obviously, he's done bad stuff too, right? I mean, how can you not in that position? But in this exact case, I suppose my criticism there is that this didn't need to be racialized. This didn't need to be played up from this angle of the black community what black community you know like i have done a lot of studying of this so-called black community and there are heterodox thinkers that are black there are christian conservatives that are black there are nra enthusiasts that are black there are gangster rappers that are black there are you know deadbeat Uh, dads and welfare moms that are black. There are suburban families that are black. There are every kind of person within this so-called community. And at this point, when I hear this phrase, like the trans community or the whatever, I'm very suspicious. And part of that suspicion comes from reading a recent book called San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger, which I have meant to do an actual review on here. 
um, because he states so well the thoughts that I've shared here about homelessness and the underlying issues. What we're really dealing with is a sort of industrial complex. You know, there is a homeless industrial complex that thrives and provides jobs and funding to real regular people in order to perpetuate homelessness. Think about that. And in this case with the black community, you know, there are people often called grifters, maybe it's not totally fair, it depends, who really thrive as individuals, as, you know, as activists or as people that speak out for black issues. Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Black Lives Matter organizers. Um, A lot of people, this is their kind of angle on everything, you know, and I'm not saying that the angle doesn't exist. I'm not saying that people that are involved in homelessness as a job don't care about homelessness, but there is something naturally self-preserving, persevering, preserving, about working on an issue that you actually should try and end, but if you end it, then you're out of work, right? And I am suspicious of of such things, so, like, when something is racialized, it's like you you are perpetuating this big race machine, and I just find that very sad. And I find Eric Adams' speechwriter very lazy to invoke the same kind of language that Obama did ten years ago. But be that as it may, um, you know, I've listened to Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, probably the two smartest black intellectuals of our time. Um, talk about this Trayvon situation many, many times, and I urge you to do the same. Just look up those names. And Glenn Lowry, in particular, really rails against Obama's lost opportunity, missed opportunity there, to bring the country together. And this is the problem with politics in general, I would say especially identity politics, and I would say especially left po- leftist democratic politics, because the Democrats used to be the sort of big tent all-inclusive party and it still pretends to be that we speak for everybody and then when you speak for everybody you do like find yourself having to name them all so it's like oh for teachers and doctors and you know uh, nurses and students and the working class da, da, da. it's like well sure those are people those are a lot of average people but those are also interest groups those are also lobbyists those are also unions and then you end up getting funding from those unions and then catering policy to those unions and you are no longer for everybody. See how that works? And black people are certainly people. They're certainly part of everybody. But if you single them out as talking about the black community, you are being divisive, you know? And I want to remind people, the percentage of Americans that are black, 13%. (laughs) I just asked my girlfriend what she thought. She's American, and she guessed 40 to 50%. And I find that so funny because, like, of course you think that if you just watch the media, given how overrepresented black people are in Hollywood and also in the news and entertainment generally. Like, come on. Like, can we leave out this whole race card from these kind of discussions? All right, I've said everything I need to say now about race. So let's move on finally from the race stuff into the more important stuff, which is the bureaucracy, failing bureaucracies, the way cities are failing us, and this mental health crisis. Now here I want to give Eric Adams credit because 
you know, he did start on that whole topic, but he actually did sort of um, make mental care the focal point of his speech. I'm not going to play the whole speech, but suffice to say, his angle there is to actually promote a new tactic in New York City to actively deal with this crisis of deranged people roaming the subways, which is a crisis, okay? And there are numbers to support that in terms of the spike in crime. But even regard ignoring numbers, there is a genuine sense of actual people, actual citizens in New York City and in LA who are overly cautious or afraid of their own cities in certain places and contexts like the subway at night or walking home at night or even walking in your neighborhood at night or the subway during the day. That is a real feeling. It's a palpable thing that's real. And you can deny that, which is fine. Maybe you aren't afraid. Maybe you think that these fears are unfounded or inappropriate, but it is a real thing that a majority, a silent majority, I could say, feels. And I think it's important and good and I'm optimistic that Adams is addressing that through active, enforced institutionalization. This is extremely important. And this is the only point I care to make now. We need cities to enforce mandatory institutionalization on people that don't know how to behave according to our social contracts all right i'll say it again if you misbehave broadly speaking by breaking a law by being violent by threatening people by having a rap sheet of 40 crimes like jordan neely had like actively punching old women in the face and being arrested for it if this is you you have given up your freedom to engage in society the way we all have decided to do. You don't just get to be an anarchist in society. You just don't get to do that. We all abide by a social contract. And look, I have immense sympathy for rebelling against that for not wearing what they tell me to wear, for doing it my way, and there's room for that. But I will still shake somebody's hand. I will still give somebody a hug. I will still look them in the eye. I will still give the basic amount of respect owed to everybody in the world. I will always follow these kind of rules as best I can of course, I make social faux pas more than almost everybody. I'm in a very Larry David class of doing so. But it's not for lack of trying. It's just, you know, society is messy and it is hard to always know what to do or say. But certain things are not hard to know. You can't sleep on the sidewalk. You don't get to claim that as your own. You can't randomly run up to somebody and threaten them. Okay? If you do that, you have to face consequences because we have set up our society in such a way that we remove people like that from <laughs> daily life. Now, that's as far as I'll go in terms of advocating for all this. Um, so 
uh, unapologetically because of course there are problems, there are difficulties with how we do this, how we institutionalize people. Prisons are not good. They are too punitive. They're not rehabilitative enough. We are too indiscriminate with how we dole out punishments. You know, mandatory minimums are a terrible thing, especially for nonviolent offenders. I can go on and on about the justice system. It's flawed. The bail system is flawed. You know, our, our, our legal books are flawed. But we have them and we need them. And Jordan Neely was one of 50, I believe, known active troublemakers with mental problems that the police knew about and released again and again and again. Why? Why was that happening? You know, like, why is why was New York failing to such a degree? You know, you hear about, especially with terrorism, but also just with, like, violent criminals. If you're in that world, if that is your world, you know the people. You know the players. It's very rare that, you know, these large-scale, high-profile crimes are committed by nobodies. They're nobodies to us, us lay people that just read the news. But if you're actively involved in, like, you know, intelligence gathering or, you know, in the justice system, you have these people on the books already. They've been tried. You've tried to give them a social worker. You've tried to give outreach and encourage them to go into a shelter. And they have said no, you know. And I'll come back now to this woke ideology here. And this is a major point made by Schellenberger in his book, San Francisco. We are so conscientious and we care so much. We, we're so supposedly compassionate. I've done a podcast on excessive compassion that we think it's nice of us to leave people alone. We think that the best thing we can do as a society and as neighbors is to just leave somebody in their tent to, you know, free base crystal meth and to tweak out or to nod off on heroin. The nicest thing to do is just to let that person lay in the corner of the subway station or in front of your neighbor's doorway. Because that's just, it would be so cruel and inconsiderate or like, who are we to say that that's wrong, right? Like, oh my gosh, like I could never impose my judgments on such a person. That's just, you know, a live and let live attitude. Let that person just start a whole homeless encampment with all of his drug buddies right there on our sidewalk. Why do we think this? Why do we think this is nice of us? Why do we think that that's good? This is not good. It's not good for them. I mean, imagine if you were hitting your rock bottom. Imagine if you had an addiction issue or a mental health issue. Do you really want to be left alone? Do you really want to push away your family and for, for them to let you go? I mean, I deal with this we all deal with this in our own personal relationships to some degree, right? If my girlfriend says, I don't think we should be together, let me go. It's not the nice thing to say, okay, I don't want to put any impositions on you. I would hate to cage you. You're a bird who deserves to sing and fly away free. I won't fight for you at all. Go ahead. If you're feeling that way, let me just back away. I learned that lesson in high school when my girlfriend broke up with me because she was she was feeling scared of her emotions because she saw herself change from this like feminist raised 
strong independent woman to a girlfriend, you know, who like used pet names on me. And she felt like she was losing her sense of self. And so she wanted to break up. And I said, yeah, that's fair. If you want to break up, then I'm going to respect your decision. I'll regret that to this day. And I've learned my lesson. Like, of course, to some degree, like you have to figure that out. It's a very nuanced, sophisticated balancing act to figure that out. But it is not necessarily the right thing. And most often it's the wrong thing to let someone go that you love, who needs your help, who is actually actually crying for help. You know, you have there's subtext there. If someone is on their on the street, estranged from their parents or their family, you know, doing drugs every day, scabs on their face, disgustingly dirty, you know, smelling of piss, strewn, strewn stuff all about like some hoarder taking up an entire sidewalk, that is a cry for help. You have to help that person. It is like so awful to me that we ignore that until something really bad happens, like they stab somebody. And I think that at some point, society has to reckon with that. And what happens, more often than not, is something like vigilante justice. And that was happening in the 70s and 80s in New York City. There was a famous case of a guy shooting a criminal. You know, it's like, well, if the cops aren't here to do something about it, then I'm going to fucking do something about it. And I've seen enough videos of New York subway confrontations where it's like, why the hell is no one doing anything? Like, here's somebody terrorizing this subway car and everybody's just standing around afraid. I find that so disturbing. And I'm not saying that I'm better than that. I'm not saying that I would be the hero that jumps up and, you know, strong arms somebody to the ground or something. I don't have that training. But I am definitely outraged when people do nothing. And here we have a case in which somebody did something. A man trained in such things as a Marine who put this crazy guy into a chokehold. And we're going to punish him. We're going to we're going to charge him with manslaughter. Now we'll see how that goes in regard to the, you know, the actual trial. It's hard to say if that will be a trial based on public opinion, similar to how um, George Floyd's, I'm forgetting the guy's name, you know, that guy was convicted. Um, it was kind of like a foregone conclusion that he would be convicted, no matter how technically innocent he was. There are some cases like OJ, where it's just like optics only, you have to just make a ruling that is <laughs> that, you know, that doesn't lead to more violence down the road or something. Um, terrorism works. Terrorism works very, very unfortunately. And I really disrespect terrorists for this reason. And I'm putting leftist activists in that camp. If you make a big deal about white on black brutality, and then in a court of law prove that it was justified, that's not going to very much appease the activists. That'll be, there'll be claims of institutional rigging, you know, the system not working, all this. And there will be violence in the streets. And Derek Chauvin, that was his, his name. Certainly after 2020, when Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis was being charged, there was an intense fear of every mall in America, every main street, you know, every police force ready for riots if he was let go. And you know what I'm talking about. So it's hard to say if this will fall under that. I hope it doesn't. But um, my sympathies go to 
this guy, Daniel Penny, the 24-year-old who strangled Jordan Neely to death. Not because I want to lionize him or say that he did it right. It's too bad that he did it so strongly that this guy died. But, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that Jordan Neely was just doing nothing, minding his business, and deserves all of our love and support because he was just a pure victim. He was terrorizing a subway car. That's a very easy thing for me to imagine having happened. If I'm out of line here, so be it. I'm happy to stand corrected. If Daniel Penny was just some, you know white supremacist who found an opportunity to kill a black guy, if that truly is the truth, if that narrative prevails, I'll step back. I certainly won't celebrate that. But as it stands, if somebody in the New York subway did something because there's never police there and police have basically stood down in New York, and this man was essentially standing up for all of the innocent bystanders. He has my support. And I, I, I think vigilante justice is a very complex thing, and I'm not going to sit here and say that there's never space for that. You know, like I'm attracted to Deadwood and the Wild West because it's, it's this pure form of us figuring things out as people, as a growing society, as a, as a civilization. Like we have to learn how to coexist. We have to always be updating how we do that. And I won't stand for psychopaths and unstable, violent people ruining everything for everybody. That's not acceptable to me. So I just hope that Daniel Penny is supported enough from this point of view that he deserves some amount of attention and maybe even praise, maybe not. Maybe uh, maybe he'll be charged with manslaughter, and you know, successfully. I'm glad he's not being charged with murder one. That's for sure. But Jordan Neely, you know, I didn't know the guy. According to Eric Adams and his family, he was like a really loving guy who just loved Michael Jackson and wanted to celebrate life and just had a few problems. And you know, what can you do? Like, fine if that's the story, whatever. But like, what I care about is being able to ride the subway and not worry about, you know, my friends with me that could just be jumped and attacked. You know, like I do not ride the subway in LA for this very reason. And it's because we have a piss poor government that doesn't know what to do about it, that thinks the right thing to do is build houses. And that's how you solve it. You know, our new mayor, Karen Bass, has now pledged more money than ever, $1.3 billion, I believe, to, quote, solving homelessness by building housing developments. Now, I'm all for housing developments. (laughs) There are, like, many of them in my neighborhood of Echo Park right now. Like, I walk by them every day, and I'm looking forward to them being finished and filled because I support development in my neighborhood and in my backyard. I like high-density housing. I think it's great for you know, Sunset Boulevard here, there'll be even more foot traffic and cool businesses propping up for all the new community. I support housing. It will also help reduce the costs in general if there's more supply than that will assuage, you know, being overcharged for rents and stuff. That said, building apartment buildings is not going to take this schizophrenic crackhead off my corner. 
that's not where he's going to go. We need to mandate shelters. Now, New York doesn't have the same problem as California because they have a shelter-first policy. New York has a shelter-first policy, which means that if you are struggling on the street for any reason, you will be provided shelter, and there will be enough shelter beds for you to go to, which I think is great. It's not enough. We need proper drug rehabilitation clinics. We need proper mental health facilities, and we need to mandate those things. They cannot be optional. This is where I'm very supportive of Eric Adams, and I'm hopeful that this is the case. In California, not only is it not optional, we don't even have the shelter beds because we have a housing-first attitude led by, you know, big homelessness. The homeless industrial complex doesn't want to build shelters for some reason. They want to provide these stopgap band-aid services because that employs a lot of people. You know, you can waste a lot of taxpayer money by forever barely touching the problem. And that's what LA continues to do. And it's absolutely shameful. And I'm disgusted by it. And I just watched these YouTube videos of people trying to like, you know, I'm really into urbanism and public transit. And LA, it's true. The biggest knock against it is that it's public transit sucks. The reason it sucks is because of disgusting drug addicts and schizophrenics. That's why, that's why public transit sucks. We have the infrastructure. It's true that we like ripped out the trolley systems and the streetcars that were so great down Sunset. But we have public transit. We have buses. We have some dedicated bus lanes here and there. We have an underground system. We have a subway. It's just so disgusting that you can watch people smoke meth and fentanyl and shoot up heroin on the, on the subway car. And nobody will do anything about it. And it's pathetic. It's like, it's not compassionate. I don't know how progressives think that that's the right thing and that they're winning and that they have the moral high ground. I mean, that's what's so outrageous to me is that people who want to leave them alone think they have the moral high ground. It is not the moral high ground. You are not showing that you're caring and compassionate by letting this happen. It hurts everybody involved. It hurts me. It hurts you if you visit LA and want to walk around. It hurts, you know, the communities that have these new uh, subway stops. You know, it's so sad to see Skid Row grow and grow. And, you know, it's just pathetic to me. So anyways, these are all related to this story of Jordan Neely's death. This man struggling of mental health who was violent. He was not some passive nice guy. He was in and out of jail. And uh, he needed to be stopped. And it's too bad that that meant his death and demise. But I'm glad he's not in the subways anymore harassing everybody. I am, for one, glad about that. I certainly hope that this is a good chance for New York, led by Eric Adams, to properly find a new path forward so that we don't rely on vigilante justice and accept the random stabbings in the subways and instead actually commit certain people into mental health facilities. Bring back insane asylums, you know? Just don't let them be run by Nurse Ratchet of One Flower the Cuckoo's Nest. Make them funded well enough to hire good social workers and nurses and make it nice. It's so possible. It's so possible. Mental 
or insane asylums, I mean, it's pejorative, I guess. I mean it endearingly. They can be good, and we need them. And if New York succeeds in bringing about proper institutionalization out of a loving, caring effort, it will actually bring justice to the story and to Jordan Neely. And ironically, it will deliver what the activists were asking for, which is justice and so that this person does not die in vain. It's a different kind of justice. I think it's much more long-lasting and, let's say, um, scalable so that more and more cases like this are prevented in the future. More and more people like this are helped, not simply this punitive justice toward a supposed killer, but actual long-term justice for the mentally unwell who need our help and they need it foisted upon them. And we should do so with care and compassion. All right, guys, I'll leave it there. This has been Keith thinking aloud. Key thinking is always allowed, guys. Until next time. Ciao.